Well, good evening. Let me invite you to take your Bibles, turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, and we'll get there in just uh, two or three minutes. It'll be a starting place for some of our thoughts tonight, 2 Corinthians chapter 8. While you're turning there, let me just take a moment and welcome our guest. We have a number of people are visiting with us again tonight. We have a good number this morning, and uh, it was great to see people, some friends of mine from out of town, and see people that were local that are uh, visiting with us, and we had a good number, even though we had a number of people away, and it appears that we have a good number again tonight. We've had, a, I think we've just had a really good day. A lot of us enjoyed uh, a potluck this afternoon. It was a lot of fun, and uh, getting to know people, and I know it was good for me to mill around a little bit and get to know some people and I actually got to do something I've never done at a potluck before that I can remember at least I ate dessert before I ate my meal and uh, I saw a long line and I was a little hungry and I thought of that sign in Norma's Cafe not my Norma but you know there's a Norma's Cafe we had over at Frisco one time and it said life is short eat dessert first and I thought well that's a good motto but someone just accused me of the fact, said, well, your wife is gone. That's why you're doing that. Well, there might be a little truth to that. By the way, Norma sends her love. I spoke to her this uh, afternoon on the way home from that. And she said, tell everyone I said hello. So hello from Norma. She's thinking about you. She attended Temple Terrace this morning where Don Truex preaches. And true to form with the servant-minded lady she is, after lunch with some friends, she went to the hospital to see a mutual friend. And uh, so she's doing well and sends her love to all of you. Well, as I think about this lesson tonight, I think of a statement. It's been attributed to different people, so I'm not 100% sure who to give credit to. But some credit this to Winston Churchill, who said, we make a living by what we get, and we make a life by what we give. And that is certainly true. Many times we find that people want to measure their lives by what they get, by what they possess, by what they've achieved, by their success, by what they've obtained, by the number of degrees after their name, or their net worth, or some things of that nature. But a life that is well-lived is one that is a loving life and one that is a giving life. For those that are part of the church family, it's well-documented. Our theme is before us, love more and give more and it occurred to me that we have been spending the majority of our time though in the initial week when we kicked it off we talked a little bit about what it means to give more and explaining that but I'm doing a series on Sunday mornings you know from first Corinthians 13 on the love aspect of this so I thought it might be well to come back uh, tonight and to talk about the give aspect and talk about this in the standpoint when we love more we give more. Now, when you say that, when you talk about giving, I suppose it might be natural for us a lot of times to think of the contribution and say, oh, I'm going to be asked for some money. We're going to talk about money tonight. I might mention that later on in the lesson, just briefly as a sub point, but tonight's lesson is not about the contribution, the monetary contribution. It's not about money. But it is about the concept of giving. There are three things I want us to look at tonight that I think that we need to understand and how that giving is much bigger and broader and deeper than the idea of just giving money. The first thing we need to think about a little bit 
is that giving more begins with self. And this is where I want to begin by reading in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Let me just read the first seven verses and then we'll talk a little bit about what Paul is discussing here and a couple of the points from it. He said, Moreover, brethren, we make known to you the grace of God bestowed upon the churches of Macedonia, that in great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded in the riches of their liberality. For I bear witness that according to their ability, yes, and, and beyond their ability, they were freely willing, imploring us with much urgency that we would receive the gift and the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. And not only as we had hoped, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and then to us by the will of God. So we urged Titus that as he had begun, so he would also complete this grace in you as well. But as you abound in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all diligence, and in your love for us, see that you abound in this grace also. It is apparent just from reading the first couple of verses of this that the Macedonian brethren, as Paul uses them to the Corinthian church as an example, had experienced some severe difficulties. Now, we don't know exactly what those difficulties were. We're not told in the text. But they had gone through, he says, a great trial of affliction, that they were deep in poverty. The word there that is translated poverty means rock bottom or destitution. That they that they that it describes the idea of a of a beggar that has absolutely nothing and has no hope of getting anything. So whatever it was exactly that was going on, that they were in a difficult situation. Now this possibly could have been caused in part because of their Christian faith. Maybe some had lost their jobs. Maybe they had been excluded from the trade guilds of that time because they refused to have anything to do with, with idolatry. We don't know. That is only conjecture. But what is not conjecture was that they went through a great trial of affliction and they were in deep poverty. But that did not keep them from giving. But the key, and you notice this, I'm sure, in verse 5, that it was not just their financial contribution to minister to the poor saints and not just the fact that they even gave more than Paul would even expect beyond their ability the key to this is verse 5 when he says they first gave themselves to the Lord now ladies and gentlemen that's what that theme, this theme is about this year that we're talking when we talk about love more give more we're talking about giving ourselves first to the Lord, to give of ourself, and that giving begins with self. That it's not enough just to give. You know, a person might give and not give of themselves. In other words, godly giving is more than internal. That godly giving is external. It's the kind of giving, it seems, from the text and other places that God desires when we first give of himself. What well, one, one could put a big check in the collection plate and never really have given himself to the Lord. I mean, that, that is certainly possible. 
Wasn't it James Russell Lowell that said the gift without the giver is bare? And so that's the idea here from a spiritual standpoint. And so godly giving is more than internal, it is external. Not only that, giving more begins with self because it's an attitude of humility and not one of haughtiness. In Paul's letter to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6, in the beginning of verse 17, he said, Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Now, I might just stop there and make the point, as we have on other occasions. The Bible never condemns wealth. The Bible never condemns a person who has prospered and achieved and who has done well financially. In fact, some of the greatest men in all the Bible were wealthy men. Abraham, the Bible says, was very rich. And Job was one of the greatest men of all of the East. And we look in the Bible of people that had means, apparently, but what he does command those that are rich in his present age, not to be haughty, not to be puffed up, not to be proud, not to put their trust in that which is monetary and materialistic and uncertain, but rather to put their trust in the living God. He goes on then to say to these that are rich financially, let them do good that they may be rich in good works, ready to give, and willing to share. Let them do good. They have the ability to do good. Let them do good. Let them be not only rich financially and materially, but let them be rich in good works. Let them be ready to give and willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come that they may lay hold upon eternal life. And so when we love more, we give more. And giving more begins with self. And it begins with an attitude. An attitude of humility, not haughtiness. An attitude of willing to give and willing to share. And of giving of one's self. But not only that, it is an expression of grace. In 2 Corinthians 8, in verse 6, he says, So we urge Titus. That is, he begun, so he would also complete this grace in you as well. But as you abound in everything, in faith and speech and knowledge and diligence, and in your love for us, see that you abound in this grace also. And so when we give of ourselves, when giving begins internally, when it begins with self, that is expression of grace, of favor, like the favor of God and the graciousness of God. And so as we abound, how is it? Faith, speech, knowledge, diligence, and in your love. That sounds a little bit like our theme, doesn't it? Love more, give more. Abound in love, abound in giving, I guess you could put it that way. And so as we think this year about the idea of loving more and giving more, and we're going to develop this in a number of themes as we go throughout the year, a number of applications, if you please, then let's just remember that it begins with self. But it's important for us to remember that giving more requires surrender, now, surrender is an unpopular word. And I can understand one why, why it has negative connotations. Because there is an aspect where surrender is bad. 
Sometimes I preach about persistence and perseverance and talk about never giving up and never giving in and, and never quitting. And, and certainly that is an idea of surrender. We think of admitting defeat or forfeiting a game or, or waving the white flag is the idea of surrender. And yet there is a positive aspect that we need to think about when we consider the concept of surrender. God calls upon us to surrender to Him. C.S. Lewis, in one of his works, put it this way. He said, the more we let God take us over, the more truly ourselves we become. Because He made us. He invented all the different people that you and I were intended to be. It is when I turn to Christ, when I give myself to His personality, that I first began to have a real personality of my own. Now, that, that's kind of a deep thought that we can spend a lot of time. But my only point to that is what Lewis is saying is the idea of the surrender of self. That's what he's saying there. That I need to surrender me and my will and myself. Surrender is rooted in trust. In Psalm 37 and in verse 7, the psalmist tells us, that we need to surrender to the Lord. And as we surrender to the Lord, wait patiently for Him. You know, I'm reminded of Abraham. You, you know, we read some of these Bible accounts. We've, we've read them for so long and know them so well that you just take them for granted. But God appearing to Abraham and telling him to leave his father's house and his homeland and go into a land that I will show you. And what did Abraham do? Abraham obeyed. In fact, the Hebrew writer talks about how that by faith Abraham did this and he left everything and he just sojourned in the land of promise. And he waited patiently for the fulfillment of God's promise. Now, God promised him that through his seed all nations of the earth would be blessed. And, of course, we know the story well that Sarah was past the age of bearing children. Now, if you look at the chronology in Genesis... Abraham was 75 years old when this promise was given. You remember how old he was when Isaac was born? A hundred. I hope I'm right on that. I think I am. A <laughs> hundred years old. That's 25 years. I know I'm right on that. That's not too tough a math. 25 years. Add 25 years to your life. Think about something you've been promised and it didn't happen for 25 years. That's a long time to wait, isn't it? But he patiently waited. He sojourned to the land of promise. He put his faith and his trust in God that God would deliver. Abraham surrendered his will to God. He surrendered his homeland. He surrendered his comfort. He surrendered everything. And just followed the voice of God and, and the way of God. Paul's description of this in 2 Corinthians 1 about trust, I think, helps us understand that point. He said, we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a death and does deliver us in whom we trust that he will still deliver us. And so that's the kind of trust that we're talking about, that regardless of what we encounter, that we put our trust in God. Now, this surrender, therefore, is demonstrated in obedience. 
that you say, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Whatever you ask, I will do. There's a great example of this. Remember that after a failed night of fishing in Luke chapter 5, that Jesus told Peter and the fishermen to cast their nets on the other side of the boat. And Matthew or Luke 5 records this when he said, launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered and said to him, Master, we have toiled all night and caught nothing. Nevertheless, at your word, I will let down the net. Think about that. They fished all night. Came back empty-handed. Now, it's not like you and I going fishing for recreation. This was their living. And when you catch nothing, you don't make any money. And they're, they're no doubt tired and hungry and probably frustrated and disappointed. And the Lord comes on the scene and tells them to cast her down on the other side. Well, Lord, we've been at this all night. But you know what? Because you said so, I'll do it. That, that is the attitude of surrender. It is an attitude of, of obedience. And it's demonstrated obedience that we do what God said. Why? Because he said it. Because he said it. And so giving is all about the idea of surrender. And not only that, this surrender results in a blessing. Maybe a number of things that we could talk about here, but let me suggest three. It results in peace. And Job 22 and in verse 21, Job says, Submit to God and be at peace with Him, and this way prosperity will come to you. You're going to have peace and prosperity and also freedom. In Romans chapter 6 and verses 16 through 19, Paul said, Do you not know that to whom you present yourself slaves to obey, you are that one slave to whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness? But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which were de- you were delivered, and having been set free from sin, you became the slaves of righteousness. And so surrender results in a blessing. It results in freedom that is in Jesus Christ, peace and freedom, and then power. Colossians 1 and verse 11 says that we are strengthened with all might according to His glorious power. When? When we walk worthy in the Lord, when we're fully pleasing to Him, we're being fruitful in every good work, when we're increasing in the knowledge of God, then we're strengthened with all might according to his glorious power you see when we give more the more control we have you say what we have more control when we give more yes because we're not controlled by desires by things by people because we live a surrendered life and ironically and paradoxically that gives us more control well well Giving more involves stewardship. Let's talk about that for a little while as we close. What is stewardship? Well, it means to be the manager of a household. It is one that's entrusted with the state of another people. 
Spiritually, it has to do with the management of my life in order to enhance the kingdom of God. Now, what's this mean? Well, what this means is that everything I have belongs to God. It's all His. I have been chosen as a steward or a manager to use it in a way that pleases Him instead of me. Now, I'm going to tell you, this is a difficult, uh, I think this is a difficult concept. Not necessarily to explain it, I think it's easier to explain, but it's hard to internalize. It's hard to put into practice. Because, you see, our challenge, regardless of where we are on the economic scale in life, if we've had any success whatsoever, large or small, there's a tendency to credit ourselves. I worked hard. I'm a self-made man. I pulled myself up my own bootstraps. I worked when others were lazy. I got a good education. I mean, on and on you go of all the different things. I sacrificed when others were not. And while all of those things may be true about our situation, we still need to remember that as God has blessed us in so many different ways, that we are a manager, that we are a steward, and in reality, it's all His. It all belongs to Him. Because where do we get our ability? Where do we get our skill? Where do we get our intellect? Where do we get the resources? The blessings all come from God. and It all belongs to Him. And so He's the one that ought to get the glory. We're the manager. And that, that concept is taught numerous times in the parables, the idea of stewardships. In 1 Corinthians 4, verse 2, that we're told that if we are going to be good stewards, it's required in a steward to be found faithful. And that we are to be servants of Christ or stewards of Christ and to be faithful in that stewardship. Now, what does that involve? Well, let me just bullet for you because each one of these is an entire lesson in and of itself. And we'll probably come back to them through the year and talk about them in a little bit more detail. I'm to be a faithful steward of my time. Now, what does it say in Ephesians, the fifth chapter, about our time? Well, we are told in verse 6 to redeem the time because the days are evil. To make good use, or 16, not 6, to make good use of the time, to understand the kind of time that we live in, to redeem the time because the days are evil, to store it up, to buy it up. How do we use our time? Everyone has the gift of time. I mean, we all have 24 hours in a day. We all have the same amount of time. But when we love more, Will we not give more of our time to those things that glorify God and minister our fellow man? You know, parents, this reminds us a little bit of our class this morning, doesn't it? As we talked about investing time in parenting with our children. And we, we spent the whole class in taking really this verse, this concept of investing. One of the points that I made to them and I like to use the word invest time because you can spend time frivolously and there's no return for it. 
But anytime we invest something, we understand this from a monetary standpoint. Anytime you invest something, there is a potential of a return. I, I pointed out to them that, you know, you get these prospectus when, you, when you're in different retirement plans and stuff. They say, I think they send you those to remind you to keep investing, that the funds do, done good, keep putting your money in it, you see, for retirement. But I got one the other day, the one that Norma's in for her retirement, and it's in a, a new perspective fund. I, I share that with you because it, new perspective was started in 1973, the year our son was born. And all these funds point out if you put $10,000 in, where you'd be down the road. And I got it and looked at it, and I said, hey, Norma, look at this. If we would have put $10,000 in this fund when Kenny was born, guess how much money we would have now? She said, I don't know. I said, $8 million. Now, in case you're wondering, we didn't and we don't. Just, just in case anybody wonders about that. In fact, I think in 1973, that was about a year's salary for me in 1973. So we didn't. But it's kind of fun to look at that and to think about, wow, you mean you invest and it compounds that much? Yeah. Now, that's, we, I mean, that's just a fact. You, you know that's true financially. Have you ever thought about time? That when you invest time in people, in children, in relationships, that it returns something to you? That when you love more and you give more, that down the road it's going to come back to you? It's going to bless you in some way? And so we need to be faithful stewards of our time and to use our time in such a way that's going to bless the Lord. I had some friends here this morning, you probably met them that are chick-fil-a owner operators and uh i like chick-fil-a i like their food but i just like their philosophy and i like the fact they're closed on sunday and it's a great place for young people to work that don't have to compromise um you know being asked to work on on a sunday and it's just uh it's, it's just a neat or organization well isn't that great that in s truett kathy when he started that way back long time ago just said, hey, we're going to work six days. We're going to close when other people are open, and I believe the Lord will bless us. Well, I think he probably has because they, that organization has done well. You know, you don't, you, don't, uh, you don't have to work from sunup to sundown seven days a week. Take time to do the things God calls you to do in your relationships as a mother, as a father, as a son, as a daughter, as a worshiper. As a child of God, invest time in things that are important. Well, we should be stewardships of our, stewards of our gifts. Be, be good stewards of those talents and abilities and not waste them. Peter talks about this <clears throat> in First Peter chapter 4 and in verse 10. He says, each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. If anyone ministers, let him do it with the ability which God supplies, that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now, we all have talents, gifts, and abilities. Now, it's true that like in the parable, some may have Maybe a one-talent person, and some a two-talent person, and some a five-talent person. But that doesn't make any difference. Whatever they are, 
then we're to be a good steward of those. In fact, that very parable of Matthew 25 makes such a great point of that. And, of course, the talent then was an amount of money, you understand. Uh, whether it's a gold talent or silver talent, we don't know. But the master gave these guys, according to their ability, these different talents, the five, the two, and the one, and went away and said, invest it. And you remember the story Jesus told, the guy that had the five talents, when the master came back, he had ten, he had doubled it. And the guy that had two had doubled it, and he had four. But the guy that had the one talent, and remember, it's given to him according to their ability, which tells me he did not have as much financial cumin as the guy that had five talents or two talents. But he had a little bit of ability, but he was scared. In fact, he says to Matthew 25, 25, I was afraid. And he said, I know we know that, you, that you're a, a tough master and, and that you reap where you don't sow. In our vernacular today, we'd say, well, everything he touches turns to gold. He's just one of those kind of guys. Well, I was afraid, and so I hid the talent. And here it is, Lord. And what did the Lord say? Oh, bless your heart. I, I, I can understand. It's okay. He didn't say that, did he? He called him a wicked and slothful servant. Lazy. Why? Because he failed to be a good steward. He said to him, at least you could have taken that money and taken it to the bank and gotten interest. That's, that's basically what it says, depending on your translation, those, those that pay interest on money. I don't know what the interest rate was then, but you could have got something out of it. You didn't even do that. You were a lazy and a wicked servant. And he condemned him. And the spiritual lesson there for us is very apparent. That whatever your gifts are, whatever your talents are, then God expects you to use it. If it's five, then you better be working on all five cylinders as a five-talent person. If it's two, if it's one, it doesn't make a difference what it is. Well, then we have opportunities. Galatians 6.10, a very familiar passage. As we therefore have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. Now, this week, we're all going to have some opportunities. Guess what? Your opportunity is going to be different than mine, and mine are going to be different than yours, and we're all going to have different opportunities from each other. That's just a fact. Your opportunities are going to depend upon maybe where you work or where you go to school or the neighborhood you live in or any number of things that you have opportunities. Now, what are you going to do with those opportunities? You're going to take hold of them? You're going to use them for good? You're going to use them for the glory of God? My favorite author, Anonymous, one time wrote, God writes opportunity on one side of the door, and he writes responsibility on the other side. That's a pretty good statement. And so just remember this, when opportunity knocks, you need to open because on the other side of the door is responsibility that we have as good stewards. And then we can talk about resources. I told you I'd finally get to a little bit about money. And this and resources would include that. Ephesians 4, the Apostle Paul commanded that those that stole, he said, steal no more. But rather let them labor, working with their hands, 
to give to him, to have something to give to him that has need. That's verse 28. And so we work and we labor, not just for our own benefit, but to be able to have something that we might give to the one that has need. That are, that, those are resources. Or we can look at 1 Timothy 5, 8. That we are to provide for our own. He that provides not for his own is worse than an infidel and is denied the faith. And so we work to be able to provide for our own. The Bible teaches that we are to work that we might give upon the first day of the week. 1 Corinthians 16, 1 and 2 and 2 Corinthians 9, 7 and 8. And so each day we, we take, or each Lord's Day rather, we take up collection. And we have, we have an opportunity there to give. Those are resources. As we love more, do we not give more? You know, the elders hadn't said another word about this since the day of this theme. I hope they don't mind. I'll just mention it here as we're on this point. They asked us among all the things, and you remember we had a lot of things that they laid out that this theme involved to challenge us to this year. But one of the bullet points on that was to think about our giving, our financial giving. And I believe... You, you all can just correct me right now if I'm wrong about this. But I believe that you said if you could just give a dollar more. And am, I, am I right about that, Stephen? Okay. But I thought maybe, I thought you illustrated even if it's just a dollar more. Okay. But whatever you choose, you know, whether it's a dollar more or five more or t what, whatever it is. It's what, because that's the, way, that's the way that works in the Bible. We give based on our ability to give and our purpose and our own decision. No elder or preacher or any other Christian has the right to twist your arm and tell you what to give. That's personal. That's your decision. Okay? Have you thought about that anymore? I hope you have. I hope you sat down and thought, you know, there's some good good work being done, and there's, in fact, I dare say, um, I don't see all the mail that comes in, but I see some of it, that we have more requests here to support preachers in other places and in foreign lands than we can fulfill. Okay, I see the elders nodding their heads. I am right about that, okay? That you just, you only do, so, you only do what you can do with what you got. And there are probably some men that are very worthy men that you just reach a point and say, well, we can't do any more. And so I, I can tell you just from my time in sitting in elders' meetings with these elders and listening to their discussion that what is given to the Lord on the first day of the week will be managed properly. And it will be looked at in a very spiritual way, in a very serious way, to not only preach the gospel, but provide edification, the building of this church family. So just think about that and think about what we're doing in terms of it. Because we all have the responsibility. Say, so whether, again, and we could take the one talent and the five talent and apply that monetarily. You might say, well, I don't make a lot. I'm a, I'm a one talent person when it comes to my income. You know, we got some five-talent people or some two-talent people or whatever. Well, that may be true, but am I not required as a one-talent person to just do what I can do? And if it's my buck, then to put my buck in because that's what I can do. The widows might. All right, let's move on. How about our body? You say our body. We're stewardships of our, stewards of our body? Yeah, we actually are. 
You remember this is a point that's made in 1 Corinthians, the 6th chapter. And in fact, there are those that had abused their body in an immoral way. And Paul there in that text, and I won't read all of it 12 through 20 in 1 Corinthians 6, but the idea of giving glory to God, not only in our spirit, but in our body. In fact, he says in verse 18, to flee sexual immorality, that every sin that a man does is outside the body, be he who commits sexual immorality or uh, sexual immoral, immorality sins against his own body. And do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, which is in you, which you have from God, and you are not your own? Therefore, glorify God in your body and your spirit, which are God's. That phrase, you are not your own? <laughs> have you ever heard someone say, or maybe not personally, but at least on TV, it's my body. It's my body. I'll do what I... No, it's not your body. It's the Lord's. And especially if you're a Christian, in a special and unique sense, it's not yours. It is the Lord's. That speaks to the issue of stewardship. And so we certainly don't use the body in an immoral way or abuse it in some other kind of way that hurts and harms the body. Well, then finally... My very life itself. Paul said in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20 that I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. My very life itself involves stewardship and is given to God. When we love more, we give more. I want to close with one more story. If you want to follow along the story, this is a story of the Bible, Luke chapter 7, that I thought just fit perfectly in with what we're talking about tonight. And it's the account, it's a true story, when Jesus came into the house of Simon the Pharisee. And you remember that... Uh, there was a sinful woman that came in. In fact, it said that she was known evidently in the community. Some people think that maybe she was a prostitute. I don't know. The Bible doesn't say that. But it says her sins were many. And so she comes into Simon's house. And she comes in with this alabaster box of ointment, very costly ointment. And it, it's kind of interesting the way that Luke meticulously word this. It says that she fell down at his feet behind him. She stood at his feet behind him, and then she began to wash his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with fragrant oil. So I get out of that a respect for Jesus that she didn't like get up and his face in some way or some disrespectful way, that a very humble way, and come up behind him, and I guess her hair wouldn't have been that long, probably. She probably then didn't have to kneel down, obviously, to do what the text says that she did, and knelt at the feet of Jesus. Now, you remember it was Simon that thought within himself, if the Lord knew what kind of woman this was, this sinful woman, he wouldn't even let her touch him. Well, <laughs> Jesus gave old Simon a spiritual spanking of his life. 
and I won't get into the parable they told. But when he gets done with Simon, he he turns to the woman, but he says to Simon, you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, but she's washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. You gave me no kiss. But this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet since the time I came in. You did not anoint my head with oil, but this woman anointed my feet with fragrant oil. Now here it is, verse 47. Therefore, I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. When we love more, we give more. Isn't this woman the very epitome of what we've talked about tonight? To give of herself and to come not with a haughty spirit, but with a very humble spirit and to come before Jesus and she brought what she had. She loved much and she gave much. And yet she was a sinful woman, but she came to Christ. I would call upon all of us tonight, I would call upon myself to look into our hearts and evaluate where we are. Do we love as we ought? Are we abounding in love? Do we love much? And as a result of that love, are we willing to give more in all the different ways in which that may present itself for us to give? I challenge us to think about this and to work at improving and being the kind of stewards that God would have us to be as we progress throughout this year in 2017, to love more and to give more. Well, that's my lesson tonight. You sure have been kind and listened so well. I appreciate it. As we close the night in the song that Cody has selected, we offer the Lord's invitation to any that may need to come into a relationship with him. If you're not a Christian, if through faith, repentance, and baptism, you allow the blood of Jesus to wash away your sins and, and become a steward, a faithful disciple of Christ and begin to apply the things we've talked about tonight, we'd love to serve you. If there are things in your life that are maybe amiss and you want to bring them, that we might lift you in prayer and not just let us know, but let the Lord know that we certainly would love to serve you and administer you in that way. Yet it occurs to me this is probably one of these lessons that the greatest response is in our own personal hearts. That is, we let it, the word penetrate our heart and we go home and we think about this. Then we determine we're going to do better and look for specific ways that we could love more and give more. I pray that you will. I encourage you so while we stand and while we sing.